0: You guys have so much energy this morning. I'm really ready to go for the podcast. I woke up early and had a big breakfast and a steaming hot cup of kafif. I can't wait to get going. Ben, what did you do this morning?
1: Uh, I, I woke up and I've been, you know, fending off uh, um, television producers who want me to go on and talk about my conversations with Jim Confief.
2: Oh uh, God! You know, guys, my throat is really scratchy because these these spring allergies are giving me a terrible conviv. <laughs> I I don't
3: understand what's happening right now.
0: Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Kafif Edition. Isn't I'm it the
3: Kafefe Edition? is it the I think it's Kafefe. I think
0: it's, I think it's cof- Kafif. Kafif. i I feel like
3: everyone else has an elaborate (laughs) inside joke that i am not a part of like
0: the entire internet in case yeah in case like so like me who actually went to bed before midnight for a change and actually missed this until i woke up this morning uh the president tweeted hold on what is the exact tweet again well, we have to find this he tweet. He covif. was
2: complaining about press. He was complaining about
0: press <laughs> <de> confie,
2: about
0: duck confie. Administration.
1: Press confie is what they serve in the White House mess now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he he tweeted some. Now it's been deleted, but it was uh, who can figure? It was something about with all of the negative press c o v f e f e with all the negative press coffee and then it just trailed into nothing. And the internet wondered: had the president? like had a seizure and died had his phone drop had the press people tackled him and the lawyers took it away uh and for about a good six hours Kafif hung out there so through the night people were literally just struggling to find out i heard one person my favorite uh comment was somebody said Khafif is what scarlett johansson says in bill murray's ear at the end of lost in translation <laughs> or the other way around
2: <laughs> I think my favorite tweet that I woke up <laughs> to this morning was from the Merriam-Webster account, the Dictionary yes. Company, in in which the the and they
1: have been crushing it. I want to say they have,
2: they have. So their their tweet this morning was basically like wakes up, checks Twitter, sees search trend for dot dot dot, goes back to bed.
0: Right. <laughs> people were asking Merriam-Webster, "What, I, um, what does but, this word mean?" And then and then Trump said he deleted it and then said. Who can this is Wednesday morning? Who can figure out the true meaning of kafif? Question mark. Question mark. Question mark. Enjoy. So it's like a gift that he's given us.
2: You know, it's hard to think okay. about the Trump presidency as a as a gift that keeps on giving. But last night may have been one clear example yeah. of that. I have to say, I'm a little a little bit grumpy about the whole uh, internet explosion over kafif or kafefe because um, okay. it. Food. Sorry. It, it it does make you hungry. Okay. So there's that. But it's also just like how easily he can make us all jump and run in one direction. I i kind of felt manipulated, even though it clearly was unintentional.
0: I feel like this one was, I, I totally agree with you on that. And it was depressing for that reason. But at the same time, I feel like it was fun. And everybody basically knew just something kooky had happened. But it was can, an unguarded moment. No, not that he doesn't have unguarded moments. He's sort of unguarded. But, but can I just say
1: time. about it that, like,
0: the first half
1: of the of the tweet is clearly a complaint yes and the second half is clearly a butt dial of some kind <laughs> and that makes me think that when trump trump butt dials complaints like he's just sitting there his twitter's open and his phones in his back pocket it's just like a
3: belch and his
0: his butt (laughs) he had it ready and then is uh, like dialing
3: yeah he figured like at some point he had half the thought which is negative press coverage and then yeah because it was supposed to be coverage
0: or conference right
3: coverage Coverage. i would imagine he was going for coverage and
0: it was like it stopped mid-sentence
1: yeah but maybe it was like you know maybe that's like when his when he when he kind of dribbles out a tweet you know it's it automatically is like a command key for whining about the press.
3: Can we also note that he's not allowed to delete his tweets? It is a violation of the Presidential Records Act, which people have... Have noted to him again and again and again. Item number six hundred seventy four on the articles and of impeachment. He just yeah. keeps deleting them, and it, it's such a, um, it's such a silly small thing. And who cares? And obviously, the record still exists somewhere. But like, it's such a brazen, like, oh, I don't care about that. As
2: opposed to all the other brazen violations it's of just, norms, so laws, and
3: expectations. Face. Maybe
0: that's what kafif is. Is the is the blatant disregard of uh uh ah. you know, norms and obligations of office. I think you're He's demonstrating there. his Kafif once again.
2: It's it's the Daily
1: Kafif from The President Daily Kafif. A new podcast. <laughs> yes. Some spaghetti on the I wall think it production like cod piece. <laughs> the
0: the daily kafif. <laughs> it sounds like if you're trying to say codpiece, piece but you have ice in your mouth. It's like <laughs> Batman has a nice codpiece. Is that teeth.
3: really what you've been thinking about all <laughs> night? Yes. <laughs> you have been really thinking about that. <laughs>
0: I, right. Before we get to but the I show, though, I want to raise a stuff.
1: problem with our new taping time. Because mm-hmm. we're now taping, it is 10.20 in the morning. Well,
0: usually we tape Wednesday afternoons. Right. And now we're taping, now we're taping
1: in the morning, and that raises a scotch problem.
0: I, I don't I'm... know why this is a problem.
3: <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Is the rule not before 10 in the morning?
0: <laughs> just put just, it in that's your that's coffee and just standard. have it enjoy.
2: If it's after 10 Right. And if you start drinking the night before and then just go straight through. It's no problem.
0: Well, I haven't introduced any of us. If you're just tuning in <laughs> to Rational Security for the first time, hi, I'm Shane Harris. <laughs> I was formerly a reporter with the Wall Street Journal.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm here with my good friend Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman What is Cuffeef, everyone. <laughs>
1: Hey, confif.
0: Ay, yeah, ay. Today on the podcast, nothing can top that. So let's just talk about whatever the hell else happened in the past seven days. Jared Kushner, we remember him, wanted a back channel to talk to the Russians. What was that about? In the aftermath of the Manchester bombing, the Brits question whether the U.S. can keep secrets. And in the wake of Trump's meeting with NATO leaders, where do US-European relations go from here and what did we learn about the administration's view of the nature of things in the world. Um, let's start with the Kushner story. So I must admit that as I was sitting there having dinner with my husband on Friday night and a good friend of ours about to dive into a juicy steak and enjoy a martini, the Washington Post, of course, chose that moment to publish a story, which sort of ruined my night. Um, but we knew that Jared Kushner had— Are you ex- eating a confit? Well, I was eating a confit yes, yeah. a, a juicy confit with juicy a martini. Confif. It was delicious with olive. Um, (laughs) We knew that Kushner had, so the backstory of this, obviously, you know, is uh, Kushner in a meeting with Sergei Kislyak. The subject comes up. It's still not clear who raises the idea that Kushner should have a back channel to talk to Russia and do it via a secure communications channel, possibly in the Russian embassy or in a consulate, which raised all kinds of issues. Now, we also knew that they'd already met. Kesliak and Kushner, and that they wanted, it was reported that there was some kind of back channel that Kushner was <laughs> trying to open, but it had never been so plainly stated as, you know, allegedly Kushner wanting a back channel to talk to Russia and doing it. And in a, a technical
2: facility. back channel, not just a technical just back channel, not just the way we
0: think of a back channel. This is sort of the opposite of Trump and the wiretapping. It, it appears here that Kushner was being literal, not figurative. Um, <clears throat> Susan, let me start with you, because this raises, I mean, any number of security issues to start with. But what was your initial reaction to this and hearing this? And I should say that no one has come out, by the way, to dispute the idea that the Washington Post story, as reported, is accurate. And even, you know, some sources are coming out and saying, yes, he wanted to do it. And he wanted to talk to the Russians about operations in Syria. So there was a practical purpose for this.
3: Yeah, so I think, um, uh, the, the most sort of significant or, or, uh, alarming and odd part of this is that, um, they had suggested that they use Russian, uh, secure communications. That really, um, sort of puts the lie to the notion that this is a back channel, um, and demonstrates that what was really being, uh, uh, pursued here was a covert communications channel. That one, uh, point of this channel was in order to avoid, uh, detection or surveillance by uh you know US intelligence services uh allied intelligence services right other parts of the US government um and so that uh, uh all of sort of the explanations that have been offered later oh you know it was about serious strategy uh you know it's ordinary to have a back channel these things sure 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 um it's not ordinary to do that in a way that appears designed to be um Hiding from elements of the US intelligence community, elements of, of the US government. And so that is, um, that's the, the really sort of startling piece and, and the one that, um, uh, it, it makes it really, really difficult to come up with a truly benign explanation. I think the most benign explanation we can come up with is like being really naive and stupid, even that, I mean, One, it's not great news, um, but even that doesn't quite fit, especially because we know that Michael Flynn was there, um, who was the director of DIA, yeah, um, and certainly should have been in. aware. So that's
0: a really bad idea, Jared. <clears throat> um, what Tomorrow, talk about this notion that, and this is, I think, uh, I don't remember if H.R. McMaster said this, but certainly Homeland Secretary Kelly talked about this in the wake of it saying, back channels are normal. We have back channels all the time. Kelly even said whatever the input might be, if we're getting information from whomever, however we should take it. Is that really how things work when you're talking about back channels?
2: So typically when we talk about a a back channel for communications with another country, it's um, number one, either an adversary with whom we're testing out a new kind of relationship or a very, very close partner, but back channel as opposed to the normal diplomatic channels of bilateral communications that go through embassies or envoys and are at least to some extent transparent to the public and to the rest of the government you know the president sends a message through the national security council to the ambassador in the field and the ambassador in the field goes to his host government and delivers it that's the front channel so typically a back channel simply means something that doesn't use that normal process uh you know uh kissinger flying off for a, a meeting in beijing and not taking the press corps, you know, pretending that he's in Pakistan, but actually doing a side trip to Beijing. That's a back channel. It is not – first of all, these are people who are in office, okay? Jared Kushner was not yet in office. And certainly if he and Flynn had wanted a normal back channel with the Russians, all they had to do was wait a few weeks and they could do that with no problem at all. Um
0: Right, private citizens don't do back channels so much.
2: Right. In fact, you know, there there is that untested Logan Act, right, that says private citizens are not supposed to be doing that kind of thing on behalf of the US government. Um and then there there is also the question of You know, what's the mix between public and private interests here? And that, you know, goes to the underlying vulnerability or challenge of the Trump administration as a whole, particularly when it comes to Russia, but not exclusively Russia, which is that having these family members whose financial interests and personal interests are deeply wrapped up with the president's engaged in diplomacy on behalf of the United States, especially when they're not yet in office. You know, are they advancing American interests? Is this a policy conversation or is this something about their private interests? And how do you even know the difference? And I think that that's why this news um, was so striking. And that's why the concern that, uh, that Kushner was looking for a way to cut out the U.S. government is so disturbing because a, a normal back channel would also cut out lots of parts of the U.S. government. But as long as that's what the president wanted, it would be OK.
3: So I think that is really the key point, sort of like the the what is the substance of all of this? Remember, the uh, one big unanswered question is in terms of the Flynn-Kislyak calls is, what was actually said we know that sanctions were ultimately discussed um but we've actually never had an accounting of well one was it on behalf of or at the direction of trump and two what did they say about sanctions did they say that they were going to lift sanctions and there's never been like that policy articulation of why are you pursuing this how do you see this as helping the united states well, I think there's
1: another key point though. Um, so normally a back channel is when you're in power, uh you have your regular channel, you know, the good old fashioned State Department. And then you use some other element of the government in order to go around, or even a private intermediary, um, you know, that's been known to happen, right? Um, but here you're at they actually weren't in power. Right. They're, they're a transition. They're actually like not, you know, any communication that they do is itself a back channel, actually, because they're not running the State Department. They're, you know, you have a, tra- a con, contact with the transition. That is itself a circumvention of the idea that the, we have one government at a time, one president at a time. And then you do that not only without without coordinating and deconflicting with the state department or uh any other component but taking no pun intended active measures to avoid the intelligence community knowing about it to the point that you actually propose Uh, using Russian communication facilities so that you're secure against our own government knowing about it. That's a little bit more than a back channel. That's uh, a... It, that's a back channel to a back channel right. at a minimum.
3: <clears throat> and actually, this just popped into my mind. But um, uh, remember when Adam Schiff in February uh, made a sort of an indication that Flynn might have been using uh, encrypted, encrypted, encrypted communications? communications? Yeah. So I just pulled it up on my phone, and this is in February. So it's right after um, there are sort of the, the reports that's, that sanctions were discussed. And, and Schiff says, um, what I think is interesting here, there are allegations, again, as yet unproven, that there may that they may have also used encrypted communications. Uh, since Flynn was talking with the Russians, if he was using encrypted communications, it wasn't to conceal it from the Russians. Then you have to ask, who are they concealing conversations from? So this is whether it was sort of there was knowledge of this specific incident back then. Um, actually, clearly, this issue of, of concealing the comms themselves was on you know the hipsy vice chairs, is mine and i think
0: that's yeah that's such an important point too because if if we're if we're going from, from this just from jared kushner maybe suggesting it you could imagine that on you know ben's now A famous scale of malevolence to incompetence, that that actually veers more towards incompetence because maybe Jerry Kushner doesn't know any better. And he thinks, well, you guys have got secure communications. Why can't we talk there? When you were the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, there is no question in your mind if you're suggesting something like that, you know exactly what the import is, right? I mean, you're trying to hide something.
3: Yeah, I mean like like look, if um even if they wanted to have if if they wanted to have secure communications with a foreign government in the transition period, they could have gone to the United States. And and there is nobody who's in a better position than the United States government to set up secure communications channels with another government. And would government. they
0: have done that for the transition team or would they have said, "Guys, you need to just hang on for 3?" No, three. no so they
3: I, they, have they, set they it certainly up. would have. And, and in fact, that was one of the concerns of the transition member people were calling the Trump Tower switchboard um instead of going through like the secure channels I mean one of the issues was they weren't Prepared for them, um, but the other was that they, they actually weren't secure lines. So certainly, um, that that would have been part of a transition, or, or even if they'd asked sort of for something unusual, um, uh, there there at least would have been serious consideration about how to facilitate that. Um, the ch- the challenge though is those communications involve comsec monitoring, right? They're they're not the the U.S. government is not blinded to them, um, and so that's the. That's just the. That's the bizarre part, and and that's just there is no other reason. Why you would want to use Russian systems?
2: I I think there is one other possible reason, which is that this group of people around President-elect Trump during the transition firmly believed and maybe still do believe that the entire U.S. intelligence community is engaged in a conspiracy against them. And so they don't want to have any communications that are visible to that group of people. So. I mean, you can say it's crazy. You can say it's paranoid. You can say that it contradicts, you know, the, the notion that they were about to take over the presidency and therefore the executive direction of that intelligence community. But.
3: There's lots of indicators that they do believe this. But think about how they chose to respond to that, to go to, into uh, the Russian embassy or to attempt to go into the Russian embassy and use their communications, right? So put so themselves... Oh, but come themselves... on, the Russians <laughs> just want to
2: help us. They want to help us order the world and end the Syrian civil conflict. And we should, right, we should be friends with
3: them. Puts themselves in, in enormous security risk, puts them in a position to be compromised by these secret sort of relationships. I, I think you're right that that might have been the impulse. Um, But again, uh, uh, sort of a negative impulse, and then the astoundingly terrible judgment, um, uh, and the ultimate sort of the the uh, the real indication here is is that they trust Russian intelligence services over U.S. intelligence services. That raises some. Pretty significant questions. Anyone
2: with a kavefe
3: of sense
2: would know better.
0: <laughs> I just think it's obvious that Jared Kushner is a big fan of the Americans, and he asked Kislyak if he could see the inside of the residentura.
1: <laughs> I, I um. just I just want to say that Jared Kushner is welcome to be our guest on Rational Security anytime. Oh, yeah. Um, we're, we'll ask
2: him what he thinks about 702. We yep. want to use our
3: own microphones, we're gonna use,
1: Yeah, we're going to use Russian communications equipment to record it. <laughs> and um and uh we can promise him that there'll be no surveillance by US intel except Susan
2: except the low flying helicopter. <laughs> yeah, <that comes. laughs> and uh, our many listeners.
0: All right, let's move on to our second topic. Uh in the aftermath of last week's uh, suicide bombing in Manchester, Images of the bombing equipment uh, – the, well, the bombing equipment, the bomb, the remnants of the bomb were uh, shared with journalists at the New York Times, um, prompting Prime Minister Theresa May to make what I thought was a really extraordinary statement. I'd love to know if you guys think the same, saying that she would raise with President Trump her concerns – about information shared with the Americans being leaked out to the press. And obviously the concern here, one of them anyway, is that if you're sharing that kind of operational information in the midst of literally a manhunt for people who are associated with this bomber, you could be affecting the uh, course of the investigation, maybe even tipping off the bad guys to what you know. Um, so, of course, this comes on the heels of the revelations that Trump shared information from an Israeli intelligence source with uh, Kislyak and Sergey Lavrov in the Oval Office. Um, that's more of a front channel or a side <laughs> channel. Um, uh, but, but importantly, I mean, we're talking about maybe different sources of leaks here, too. I mean, that's the president saying one thing in the Oval Office. This other information almost certainly was not... Well, I'm guessing it probably wasn't coming from the White House, but maybe from more operational level people. But, I mean, what was your guys' reaction to, you know, Ben, maybe start with you, because you were uh, so concerned and wrote a lot about the Oval Office, you know, tipping um, from the Israeli source, to see Theresa May come out and publicly scold, essentially, the administration for this. This is our most important intelligence-sharing partner. Um do you think this is part of a pattern that we're seeing, or should we think about the leak that occurred in the Manchester bombing is somehow distinct so from we, what happened with the Israelis? So right? I
1: think we probably should think of it as distinct, and I think the uh, both are bad. Um, one may or one is clearly a function of Donald Trump as a human being. It's something he did individually the other may or may not be a function of the trump administration and may just be a function of the us uh investigative world being uh, a little bit more communicative and leak prone uh, in general than the british uh they uh when when we do a major investigation of a terrorist operation uh we expect uh, public disclosure of all kinds of things quite quickly. And those include, uh, briefings to the press that are, you know, gonna become, you know, releases of information in a timely fashion from the Bureau. And, and that's a pretty common thing. Uh, special agents in charge give pr- briefings. Uh, the heads of major investigations give briefings. And I, I I think this may be an example of less of a, a, a leak in the sense that, you know, than just the US behaving like the US with British information that the British wouldn't have wanted uh, treated this way. Uh, it's egregious. It's very bad. We should be protecting allied information better. But I'm not convinced on the current record that this is, like the Israeli situation, an example of the Trump administration leaking like a sieve. Now, there's another possibility, of course, which is, is that it is an example of that. And, um, and I don't think we know the answer to that. What we do know is that uh, this kind of thing didn't happen during the last administration and uh, – or the administration before that. I don't mean to make a partisan well,
0: point. Well, there were operational leaks. There I mean, were yeah, cer- you know, certainly operational AQAP leaks. AQAP and the but I, underwear bombings and all that. But I matters. can't
1: think of a case uh, – an example where an allied uh, mid-investigation elevated to the level of a prime minister to presidential complaint – Right. U.S treatment of allied uh, highly sensitive operational information. Um, I, I just can't think of an example of that. There may be a case of it. I just I, I, it's not coming to mind offhand. And so I think one, one other possibility is that this is an example of a, a, a general uh, inability to control information that's pervasive throughout this administration in and it affects, the president, when he sits in the Oval Office with the Russians, and it affects, you know, uh, the way. People associated with his administration talk about ongoing allied investigations?
3: I think there are two, there are are a few things. One, um, I don't think we should assume that this isn't out of the White House. This is certainly information that would have been in the White House. That's the place that has actually changed. And so I think if we were, you know, sort of trying to make the most, um, uh, the easiest explanation, it it certainly is the White House. There's also an explanation that um, uh, we just have a ton of chaos going on right now. And so the ability to do things Things like close hold information within agencies and the way stuff is ordinarily treated, that's not going as well. And so more people are seeing it or or something sort of of that uh, nature. I agree that this isn't like the leak of, you know, the sort of Oval Office leak to... uh, 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 regarding Israeli intelligence or purported Israeli intelligence. And, and I'm not even sure that this is a huge security compromise, right? We, we are probably talking about sort of j- value judgments in terms of how, you know, when to release particular types of information. Um, but I, I, you have to think about sort of... Um, uh, the position that the UK government is in. Yes, they are um, investigating, right, getting trying to get to the bottom of sort of the the immediate uh, attack. They're also communicating with their public. Um, this really... Unsettling, scary thing has happened. A concert, you know, frequented primarily by sort of preteen girls. Um, uh, you know, this, this really uh, traumatic event has occurred, and and part of the government's function after that is to communicate in a particular way to their people about what has happened, what is known. It's important to not have sort of false starts, right, where you're giving information that that's wrong, and then you're retracting it. And so it, that's really for that government to decide when it is how they want to communicate sort of in the in the immediate aftermath and days and so for the united states to have that information and leak it it's not just sort of that they undercut the security equities which they may or may not it's that they've they've really Put the the UK government itself in a really terrible position at a moment of emergency, at a moment in which you know they're uh, they're sort of under under the most possible stress, and and that's the sort of I think that's the more significant breach, and and that's why it gets elevated higher.
2: I I think that's right, and I think that actually May's public rebuke can be seen in that context and in the broader context of European leaders and other leaders of partner countries and allied countries beginning to adjust their mode of engagement to what they see coming out of Washington, which is chaos, uh, ignorance of normal procedures and practices, devaluing of relationships, and a total lack of discipline and control over the executive branch. And we've been hearing that from European leaders for weeks and weeks in the lead up to this Trump trip to the NATO and G7 summits. Um, and, and this bombing happened in the midst of all of that. Uh, and so it's no surprise, I think, that, you know, after what happened with the Israelis, whether it's the same sort of thing or not, the British prime minister felt that she had to respond immediately, strongly, clearly, and publicly to, uh, to an apparent violation of norms um, or a violation of friendship as you're describing it Susan and so I I think that this might be a little bit of a piece with the macron Trump handshake you know where macron said after the fact about this very very firm handshake that he wouldn't let go of you have to show that you're not willing to make any concessions I think European leaders are starting to take President Trump at his word. Yeah. Uh, And to treat him the way he treats them. And what that means is, in essence, uh, a lot of mutual mistrust um, and a race to the bottom in terms of these relationships which have been so central to America's ability to get things done around the world. Can I just just
1: add something to that? I think it's a really important dynamic that, uh, you know, the Trump administration pattern of the president saying or doing something outrageous, and then the cabinet and and uh, senior political appointees rushing out to say, "Don't take the president seriously," uh, actually does is you're starting to see it not working anymore. Uh, and so, you know, when when the president says something, and then Nikki Haley contradicts him. Or Mike Pence contradicts him. Uh, You can get away with that for a few months. But eventually, in an organization that's as vertically integrated as the executive branch of the United States, it's what the president says and does that matters. And, you know, if you're Emmanuel Macron and you cannot establish a working relationship with Donald Trump, it actually doesn't matter all that much if Rex Tillerson is a fine guy and sweeping up his mess after him and if you're uh you know Angela Merkel and you have to decide uh do we count on the American security umbrella or does Europe kind of go its own way uh you know what the president says is ultimately more important about article 5 than what James Mattis says and James Mattis maybe the the most honorable guy in the world and he may mean everything he says about article 5 but when the president then doesn't back that up you actually the the structure and hierarchy of the executive branch ultimately speaks very loudly and and I think that's what's going on that that just like lots of people in this country lots of people in Europe including the leadership of these countries is are finding that they don't trust the guy and they don't they can't rely on the guy and they're and that's what you're seeing a response to.
0: Is, we'll wrap this up, but isn't it interesting then what Trump's response to May's statement was? It was essentially to come out and say, Yeah, she's right. This is terrible. I want an investigation into this leaking, which he's been complaining about for since the day he got in office, and even before, and which I have to imagine Theresa May is just sitting there shaking your head, being like, "Yeah, you're missing the point, right?" I mean, this is the subtext of her message was exactly what I think we're talking about. He used it as an opportunity to say, "Yeah, right. I don't like leaks either."
2: Right, well, which, asserted,
0: and- which is, I mean, is is an interesting way of I don't. What I guess I'm saying is I don't know whether or not he appreciates what the subtext of her message. Yeah,
1: was. but look, Trump is the. He is not wrong that he is the victim of a lot of leaks. Sure, but that's and, not the point. And, and actually, Susan yesterday wrote a piece on Lawfare saying those are legitimate concerns. Um, that said. He is also the head of the executive branch and he is not the victim of the executive branch. He is the head of the executive branch. And if the executive branch is unable to control information, that is actually by definition his fault. Uh, Not just his problem, his fault. Because, you know, that's the other side of this whole unitary executive thing where the president has a lot of power is that he has a lot of accountability, you know, in that kind of Spider-Man way. And when all of the power, the, all of the executive power is vested in one person, that means if that entity is leaking stuff, it's that one person's fault by definition.
0: OK. Uh, let's move on to Trump and the, the NATO meeting. We talked about the Macron handshake. You could actually see the
2: what white What is knuckles. with
3: men? I, like, the handshake, arm wrestling. I don't think... I You don't see women doing that crap. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you don't, but you saw other body but, language. Uh, I mean, people... Yeah,
0: hold on. You see, like, women coming out and, like, Theresa May, like, knifing the guy in Angela Merkel, coming out and basically saying, screw America, we're on our own.
3: Well, yeah, but, like, the handshake thing. There was just something I thought it was yeah, silly on both sides.
1: I just silly. want to point out to Emmanuel Macron, if you want a good physical confrontation... Uh, You should offer to host my fight with Putin. You hosted Putin. You did the handshake. You're clearly into the physical combat aspect of this.
2: Okay, that's about as opportunistic an insertion <laughs> as Trump <laughs> replying to Theresa May by saying, yeah, I hate leaks. We're going to investigate leaks. <laughs> I,
1: I, I have no shame about promoting my bout with Putin. Uh, uh,
0: Tamara, you put I, I want you to talk about this uh, uh, this op-ed that McMaster and Cohen had today in uh, a certain newspaper. A
2: certain newspaper that um, you write for, yes. Uh,
0: in, in let, so tell us about that. And I, I mean, if we should put this in the context, too, of the... The initial reaction, I think the big reaction coming out of the NATO summit, I thought was, you know, Angela Merkel essentially saying Europe needs to think about its future and it's taken in its own hands. And these questions that were being raised about whether the U.S. commitment is solid anymore to the, the mutual alliances that have essentially stood us very well for nearly eight decades and have formed the backbone of our of our foreign policy. So what did McMaster... No, no big deal,
2: answer? Shane. It's you no know, big deal. Just that,
0: that stuff. You know, it's just <laughs> a kafif, whatever. But, um, uh, so, so tell us about what the op-ed said, and, and, and let's talk about what that may reveal about how the Trump administration actually reveals these alliances. Sure. So or I reviewed, think season. that
2: there were sort of two schools of thought coming out of the president's... Uh, the Europe leg of his trip, the NATO summit, the G7 summit. One school of thought was this kind of hyperventilating, <clears throat> you know, Trump with one blow that is you know, complaining about NATO uh, partner contributions and refusing to reiterate America's commitment to Article 5, that with one blow, he destroyed the Atlantic Alliance. And then the other school of thought was, okay, come on, you know, Merkel has elections coming up. And a lot of this is about European domestic politics. And so, you know, don't take it quite so seriously. I I think that um, those who were inclined to to say that what was wrong with Trump's approach in Europe was tone more than substance. In other words, that, come on, NATO partners aren't contributing 2% of their GDPs to defense as they promised. And President Obama complained about free-riding allies also, and all Trump did was amp it up a notch in the way that Trump always does. That school of thought, I think, suffers a blow (laughs) in the wake of this op-ed by um by Conan McMaster in the Wall Street Journal today in which they lay out or attempt to lay out what for the Trump administration and America first foreign policy means and it's what it has to say about attitudes toward our allies and partners is deeply deeply unsettling it's a fundamental shift let me just quote a little bit they say the president embarked on his first foreign trip with a clear-eyed outlook that the world is not a global community, but an arena where nations, non-governmental actors and businesses engage and compete for advantage. Um, they go on to say, at every stop in our journey, we delivered a clear message to our friends and partners. Where our interests align, we are open to working together to solve problems and explore opportunities. I mean, you could not imagine a more... um competitive orientation toward international affairs, essentially that it's a war of all against all. So therefore, all these institutions of multilateral governance that we've created, like the UN Security Council, all these alliance relationships we've built up to mitigate that competition like NATO, they don't mean anything. It's all about the competition. And hey, you allies, If we think we have common interests with you, which is an open question, we might be willing to work with you to explore opportunities. You couldn't find a more tentative um, expression of America's relationships with its traditional partners. So, you know, I I think the hyperventilators actually are proving to be correct in terms of the Trump administration's approach. And I would say, too, that what's expressed in this op-ed is really consistent with what we know about Trump's attitude toward foreign affairs over many, many years dating back to the 1980s. Um, we've talked about it before as a relatively superficial, relatively transactional short-term approach to, to foreign policy. But the danger is now that he has professionals like General McMaster Writing a national security strategy based on these ideas, writing op-eds, trying to add some actual heft, what's coming out is really, really challenging to our sense of America's role in the world and, and potentially very destabilizing to a set of relationships that in and of themselves carry value for the United States because these countries have been willing to carry water for the United States and w- if we lose the alliances, that's what we're losing.
3: But h- how do you reconcile sort of the two, the two legs of his trip, right? His the Middle East portion of his trip and the Europe portion of his trip, because uh, I think that that is a, like a that's an account of that's I don't know that it's <clears throat> I, I think the the McMaster op ed was a little bit of sort of gaslighting of this, like he deepened and solidified relationships. Well, clearly, he didn't. Um, <clears throat> But you give uh, well. He
1: deepened and solidified our relationship with uh, certain autocrats in the Middle East. Well, so
3: this is my point, yeah. right? So, yeah. so he has for this sort of like tough talking accountability about where our interests align and where they don't, and accountability that that was true in Europe, but it certainly wasn't true for sort of his his trip through the Middle East. Um, and whenever he had this sort of nothing but nice things and and welcoming, and oh, you know, we're gonna have this lovely, uh, cooperative relationship, and so it does seem like it's um. Uh, there's there's just sort of a, a mismatch in uh, in his approach to uh, it, it really does feel as though it's sort of it's a hostility to traditional relationships based on shared values um, and and uh, an openness to uh, to wanting to have relationships that require ignoring shared values
0: well, can I ask as a coded to that question too and it's a flipping question but a serious one. Is had Angela Merkel brought him a glowing orb, would the reaction have been different? <laughs> no, seriously, right? I right,
2: because they did try to shape the news. They anticipated summits, a so it was,
0: cool, chilly meeting.
2: They did, yeah. and and they were ready as as we were just discussing to begin responding in kind if that expectation was met. So I think that there are a couple things that explain it, Susan. One is asymmetry. Okay. The Middle East leaders need the United States for all the talk about Russia and China and whatever. They have nowhere else to go for a security guarantor but to Washington. So they have been assiduously courting Trump from the moment he was elected, before even the inauguration. And that has paid off. Okay, He likes feeling wanted. Um, with the Europeans, it is much less asymmetric. Yes, the United States is an 800 pound gorilla in NATO. It does carry disproportionate burden. Um, and that has irked a succession of American presidents. But they all know that the payoff has been worth it. And that's why they've been willing to tolerate it. But it's not as asymmetric as the relationships in the Middle East. And therefore, those European leaders were not going to fall all over themselves to beg Trump, we'll do whatever you want. Just please come here and love us, which is what the Saudis did rolling out the red carpet literally. The
3: projection and on the, the
2: wall, Right. The projection on the hotel. No one has
1: ever, by the way, projected our faces on the walls of the hotels our that we stay in. And oh, I, just, I just want to point out that wait. that's... That's something that really needs to happen when we get the object lessons. It's my new professional aspiration yeah, exactly. and I think, to
2: have my picture projected on the wall of a hotel no <laughs> no <laughs> not at all So I you know so I think the asymmetry matters a lot and I also think that despite the atmospherics which you're right we're very warm in the Middle East and very chilly in Europe at bottom, In both stops, Trump's message to these partners was, what are you doing for me? To the the Arab and Islamic governments that he met in Riyadh, it was, what are you contributing to the fight against terrorism? What are you willing to do about countering extremist ideology? What are you willing to do about Iran? It wasn't about what the United States is going to do other than sell weapons and take their cash. And in Europe, also, it was what are you willing to do? So that I think is a constant for Trump and how he views these relationships.
1: Although, to be to I, I do think there's another dynamic going on, which is that in the Middle East, Trump had one big thing he was giving these countries that they really I'm not
2: were, Obama. That, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, it
1: was a little bit larger than that. It was I'm not here to judge, right? It was I'm laying off on all human rights and behavioral things. And by the way, I'm giving you something else too, which is I'm turning all the rhetorical attention and the policy attention to Iran uh, and and I'm clearly siding with the sort of Sunni powers uh against Iran in a way that uh is sort of ends the Obama flirtation with a with with better relations with Iran and so I do think the uh the Sunni powers uh come away from that visit with two big gains which is impunity and and US adoption of their regional focus. Europe gets nothing. I mean if you're if you're Emmanuel uh, Macron or Angela Merkel uh what you get out of this is uh uh the only question is how much do you lose of the american commitment to the transatlantic relationship not you, you there's no big gain that you're getting out of donald trump
0: all right let's move on to object lessons <clears throat> we really have we have two objects this week but they go together And they are collective. Ben, would you like to introduce
2: them? they are glowing. Yeah, so I (laughs) I, like our
0: reviews.
1: Let me just describe one of the objects, which is easy to describe, and the other one really just you have to go to our show page to see. But early last last week, um, I felt that what was missing uh, from from uh, rational security uh, from our discussion in the glowing orb edition was a glowing orb. And so I went on Amazon, and I ordered a glowing orb. And uh, it arrived yesterday. Um, and it is a solar-powered glowing orb. The one problem with which so far is that uh, it doesn't seem to glow yet, um, which may be because they're...
2: It just hasn't been subjected to the convefe of sunshine yeah, Exactly, that it, needs.
0: it Hasn't but, been given appropriate flattery.
1: But as soon as as <laughs> as soon as the orb can be made to actually glow as opposed to look orb-like, it is an awesome-looking orb.
0: It's a, it's a serious white orb,
1: yeah. yeah. It's
2: pearlescent. It's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if we
1: have to, we'll, we'll just insert a light in it and make it glow. Uh, we will, of course, gather around it, put our hands on it, and snap a picture. Mm-hmm. However, in the meantime, the most excellent Jen Patya Howell, who uh, uh, listeners will know as our editor, uh, has, um, shall we say, rearranged... The picture of uh, Trump and uh, the and, Sisi and uh and King Salman uh, to and be Melania and Don't Melania, Melania to be more rational security appropriate and um
2: uh, I think go go look at the at the show page yeah and then let us know what you think yeah and we'll should tweet this it out be, too yeah we'll tweet it out should mm-hmm. this be our new podcast photo
0: I think I think the picture. Some people say a picture speaks a thousand words. I think that might be selling this picture a little short. Yes.
2: I think this picture speaks one word. It speaks confefe.
0: Creepy. (laughs) (laughs) You'll look at it and go, ay, (laughs) kafif. But it's our only object lesson. It's two glowing it's, orbs. It, it's so <laughs> worth it, though. You may think that we're shortchanging you this week. I promise, we're no, no, no. not. a
2: hundred years from now, when this podcast is entered into the archive at the Library of Congress, the curators <laughs> will listen to it and go, "What the hell are they talking?" They're about? like, "Yes,
0: this was the beginning of the coffee era. And it was
2: the Kofif
1: era began." The day that Rational Security had a glowing orb. (laughs) Uh. And it is
3: definitely not evidence that any of us are wasting time on very long email Mm. chains with various forms of Photoshop. Not at all. Serious work all the time.
0: Check it out. Uh, That brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a kafif of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can follow us <laughs> on the president's favorite kafifing medium <laughs> at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook, which is surprisingly coffee free. I haven't seen much there.
1: Please leave us a five star confief.
0: Yes, with a nice uh, rating about how kafify we were today. I keep saying kafif. Conf- it's keeping. I keep putting co- an co- n in there. <laughs> Ha-ha-ha-ha-ha.
2: Har- har- <laughs> <laughs> Our audio engineer,
0: our suffering audio engineer this week, is going to Jurassic. Our editor and Photoshop wizard is Jen Patia Howell. Our music was brought to you this week by, of course, Donald Trump and the Kafif Chamber Orchestra <laughs> or the Kafif yeah. Quartet, the Chamber Orchestra. Yes, he's more of a Chamber Orchestra kind of guy, probably. I don't know. Who knows? Actually, Sophia Yan, of course, does our music, and she was probably awake, like at work, yes. when Kafif happened. It probably we just were all asleep.
2: crashed over her like a week. Yeah, right.
0: So she probably really got to experience in a way that we will only be able to dream about. Um good on you, Sophia. <laughs> I envy you. <laughs> I kafif you. <laughs> on behalf of my good friends Mark <laughs> Off Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. I will not say Kafif, but just tell we meet again.